Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I talk with indie filmmaker Jed Bryan, who wrote, produced, and directed a new feature-length horror film called Unlisted Owner. We talk about the distribution deal he got at the American film market, and also the success of his film on Amazon. Let's get into it. And here we are with Jed Bryan. Jed, thanks for being on the podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, man. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. I'm excited to talk about your film, Unlisted Owner, and maybe even more excited to hear about your success with that film on Amazon. For sure, yeah. Yeah. But before we dive too deep, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you became interested in filmmaking? Well, um, I started just coming up with different ideas for scripts and things of that nature. And uh, we actually did a, made a teaser trailer for a script I had written called Meth House and just put it on YouTube to see if maybe we get some buzz from it and didn't really go anywhere. And then uh, we did a GoDaddy commercial. We were in a contest and we got like eight out of 539 videos. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so we so I finally decided to write a script that I was able to fund myself. So uh, where I live at in southeastern Illinois, I live in a small town called Sumner. And as far as uh, video rental equipment, uh, crew, and even actors, is very, very slim to come by around here. Mm-hmm. So uh, I kind of wrote a script around the resources I had available. So you decided to take things into your own hands. I like that. Yeah. Um, and why a horror film? Um, why'd you go for that right off the bat? Well, uh, ever since I was a kid, I've always been interested in horror. Uh, I used to watch, my mom had a, a VHS tape of Vincent Price's House on Haunted Hill, and I watched that. And then I had a, the monster movie, King Kong versus Godzilla, and, you know, the old classic monster films. They've always intrigued me and stuff. And uh, whenever I got older, I saw the Hostel films and Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch Project, and it just kind of was inspiring as, as far as a filmmaker goes as I don't know. I just always been interested in the, the horror aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a small town is a great place for a horror film to take place in. I imagine. Oh, for sure. I mean, this area has, has really inspired uh, me to be able to write some of the scripts that I've came up with. Um, I'm always uh, with my job. I drive a lot and looking at different things. It's kind of like, oh, you know, it'd be creepy if this happened there, or you know, this happened here, and just kind of write a story around that little scene. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say? Unlisted owner is, uh, it's a, one of those uh, found footage films. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we. Uh, this is actually the first uh, script I'd written. Other scripts in the past, I think I've written like probably four or five before I had written Unlisted Owner. So this was the first found footage style script I had written. So it was a little bit. You, you know, you got to look at it like a different perspective coming from a found footage perspective instead of a traditionally shot film where you're thinking okay you know the camera's going to do this or do that you know mm-hmm. it's basically the, the characters in the film that have control of the camera so you kind of have to try to put that into the script yeah and i imagine you save money on cameramen 
that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I also acted in the film. Uh, that was one less person that I had to worry about showing up, and uh, I also had more control over it. So the majority of it is filmed by myself. But uh, I did have the actors actually use the camera to kind of give it more of a realistic feel. And how do you know when you when you got the take if if the cameras are actually in the actors' hands? Well, uh, we I actually had an assistant director who was in another room of the house or in another location. He had a TV, and we actually had a digital transmitter on the camera. Mm-hmm. It didn't uh, it didn't transmit the sound, but it did transmit the video. And usually, he was close by that he could hear, unless we were in a vehicle or something like that. And uh, I'd always go to him afterwards, like, "Hey, what'd you think?" And he said, "Well, you know, maybe do it again, except you know, bring the camera up a little more, or a- aim it this way, or you know, do this or that." And that really kind of helped as far as that goes, because, you know, not only was I worrying about my lines, but also what the actors were saying and also trying to figure out the positioning of the camera. So sometimes it got a little crazy, but we, we got it. We got through it. Right. And how, how many of the characters um, have cameras? Is it is it a one man with the camera or... We, we had multiple people that had the camera. Uh, I had a camera. Uh, there's a girl in the beginning with the original family. She had a camera. There's also another uh, guy who comes with me who has a camera as well. We also have a police dash cam, uh, an interrogation footage, and then we have a new family's camera. Mm. So there's actually about six total cameras in the film, different camera views. Wow. And I imagine since it's a found footage film, uh, matching the cameras it's not an issue no no not at all uh there is one kind of neat aspect that we did do though as far as filming goes uh a lot of found footage films you watch they do these things i can i call them hard edits to where it's filming and all of a sudden it stops and it goes into something else Mm -hmm. and i I wanted to try to go away from that as much as i could so we did a lot of these things that are called we call them blend edits or jerk edits and what i would do is uh, we do a scene and then we dip a little bit into the next scene and when we do that dip I would drop the camera down and bring it back up and then we when we do the next scene I would go back a little bit into the last scene and do the same dip and then we cut it put them together in the editor and it looked like one fluid motion all the way through oh cool very cool yeah and then yes. as far as the editing um, how, how did that I mean all this found footage um, did, the, did the story change a lot? Uh, did you find the rhythm? I mean, or were you finding the story? I mean, you said it was scripted, so you knew, right. you knew where you were going. Um, right. T- give me a little bit about the, the editing process. <laughs> well, we did have one issue. After we shot everything and we put it in the editor and edited everything together, we ended up with only 50 minutes. And I, had, I was like, oh, no, we got to go back and reshoot something, which I had a road trip scene that we hadn't included in the, in the actual filming process. So we had to actually go back through and add that scene in. Hmm. So that was, that was one of the things we had to do. And uh, another thing we also had to do uh, for our distribution deal that we signed, uh, it required an M and E track. So we actually had to go back through most found footage films that I've seen, you know, usually they just have the subtitles, but our distributor wanted us to have an M and E track, which, you know, is the dialogue separated from the background sound. Mm-hmm. So we, so we had to go back through and recreate every sound effect for the entire film from <laughs> yeah from February to July that, of this year. That's what we were working on, trying to get that done. Oh, wow. That sounds like yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So why don't you share with us a little bit about the story uh, of the film um, without giving too much away? Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
It's uh, basically about a group of friends that are getting ready to go on a camping trip, and they hear about a family of five that's been murdered in this house about a mile away from where they're camping at. So we show up to the house, and there's police cars and ambulances there, and they're pulling a body out of the house. And one of the guys that's with us says, I don't want to go camping this close to where someone's been murdered. But we convince him to go anyways, and somehow through uh, many bad decisions, we end up back at the house. So, And that's where all the fun happens. Right. Filming um, with uh, handheld cameras uh, in the dark uh, at a campsite, I mean, uh, how did you address things like lighting? Well, uh, as far as lighting goes, we had, we had to make sure we kept the fire stoked. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have a generator to keep lights going or anything like that. So we, we relied on the fire, and then also we, uh, we had lanterns around. And that really, really helped the lighting factor. Uh, we just strategically placed the lanterns at different spots. And you, I'd always have to watch. That was the hardest part was trying to watch the viewfinder to make sure that the fire was still keeping the lighting bright. And, you know, looking through a little viewfinder, that's kind of difficult sometimes. So, right. but, but it ended up looking very well in the end. So we, we lucked out greatly on that. Yeah, because a lot of those films uh, use night vision. Did you go that route? No, we did not use night vision at all. Oh, cool. Yeah, we actually, I also had a, a light rig on my camera that we uh, made because most, you know, new cameras, the handheld style, they don't have the lights on them. So we made a light rig that had two LED lights on it and uh, so we could get, you know, the brightness. And then we put two uh, little bitty flashlights on there so we could get the color to look right instead of making it look washed out the entire time. So we had that kind of that good balance in between. Mm -hmm. Now I wonder if uh, someone ever made a found footage uh, film where um, one of the characters with the camera uh, put it on a tripod for a little bit. I don't know. We, We didn't, we didn't go that route. We just, like I said, we just did the whole handheld thing. The only time we used a tripod was whenever we uh, did the uh, interrogation video. That was about the only time we did the tripod, but we do have a police dash cam in it, so that's kind of oh, a right, little aspect. Right. So, yeah, so interrogation scene, I got that out of you. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, yeah, so they're p- putting the pieces together. And, yeah, uh, great. Yeah, yeah. The the whole film has basically been edited by the Lawford County Sheriff's Department to show the events that took place between these certain days. Hmm. So we actually have evidence placards in between different scenes of the film uh, that kind of says who's holding the camera at different times, if the days have changed or what's going on. And um, I'm a big silent film fan. And uh, you know how they usually have like the little, you know, mm-hmm. cards in between the different scenes and stuff. So that was just kind of like me giving a little homage to silent films by doing that and also letting the audience know. Because if you have a found footage film and there's multiple cameras, sometimes people can get lost on who's holding the camera at certain times. So we just put the evidence placards in there to help with that and also kind of give a little nod to, the found, uh, to silent films. Yeah, that's cool. So was there ever a time where... Uh... You, you were shooting a scene and um, the characters, uh, because of the action or whatnot, they, they didn't capture the, uh, the action. Um, is, that, is that where you do you rework the scene or you just? Well, uh, we only had that problem. I think there was one time it was towards the end. Uh, one of the characters, Griffin, uh, 
he just wasn't he just wasn't filming exactly what I was wanting and we just have to cut and just redo it until he finally fought and then finally I just showed him hey just walk this way bring the camera up do this or do that mm -hmm. so but but that was really the only issue that we had was just like that one time so very cool I'm really interested in in learning about your experience with Amazon um, yeah for sure you, you want to start diving into that well, uh, my distributor is the one who uh, set set up the Amazon thing. So, uh, but we have been since uh, we it was a, made available for pre order on September twenty first. Uh, the following day, we found out we were in the top one hundred of the Amazon Hot New Horror releases, and we have been as high as ninth on that list. And we've been on there for eight over eight weeks now. This Friday, if we stay on the list, it'll be nine weeks. Wow. So, yeah, so, and uh, the the best, the craziest part about this whole thing is, you know, we didn't have a theatrical release. Uh, we tried the film festival route, and we didn't really get much success with that. And uh, it's it just been buzz locally of people have been talking about it, and the community support has been like the backbone of the whole success of this thing. And it really goes to show if you have enough people believe in you, you can almost do anything no matter where you live. Yeah, that's great. And, uh as far as sales go, um, are are you you just getting uh, you know truckloads of money showing up every day? <laughs> well, uh, I haven't exactly found out uh, since it just was just released last week. I do not have any solid uh, sales numbers quite yet. Hmm. So um, the distributor said that Amazon has not uh, released those numbers to them because, like, I think the I think it was released yeah last week, November fourteenth, when it actually officially released. So I don't know what the the uh, the DVD sales numbers are yet, or what the video on demand sales are yet. So I'm still kind of waiting on that. Yeah. Well, that'll be a happy day. I, yes, for sure. Which I mean, I assume it's been doing pretty well since I mean it's been on that list for so long. And uh, on that list, you know, we're not just competing against you know uh, like films. We're competing against TV shows that have been released. Like uh, The Walking Dead was on there. Uh, American Horror Story season six was on there. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, Happy Death Day, they just put it on for pre-sale, so that's on the list, too. And uh, they've also re-released some of the classics, so I'm even going against, like, Night, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, the whole Psycho collection. So I'm going up against some of those older classic films that have been re-released that people are buying. So to see, you know, Unlisted Owner on the list with some of those great titles has just been an honor. Yeah, that's great. And do you think uh, the many, many uh, pre-orders... Uh, is what boosted you up? Like oh, that. for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, the uh, I found out on a Thursday that it had came out, and the following day, uh, my assistant director called me, and he said, hey, uh, do you realize you're number 15 on Amazon's hot new horror releases? And I'm like, no way. He sent me the link, and I'm like, wow, I got something kind of to aim for now. So uh, I put the word out, you know, we were top 100 and it just, we just kept climbing, got up to ninth and we've, been, we've constantly stayed on the list all the way up till it actually uh, came out and we continue to stay on there, which is amazing. Wow. And you mentioned uh, you, you have a distributor. Uh, yes. How did you go about doing that if, if you didn't pick up any steam at the, uh, the festivals? Uh, so what happened was uh, we end up, like I said, we, we tried the film festival route and I actually went out to uh, Hollywood to uh, for a vacation, a trip and went to Universal Studios and did the backlot tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the guys who was doing the tour said, you know, if you have any questions after the after we do the little thing, you know, let me know. Mm 
So I'm a big, huge horror fan, and Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney is one of my favorite films. And uh, I'd always heard they still had the original soundstage there. It was like soundstage, I think, like 29 or 27, and I couldn't find it. We did the tour like three different times, so I asked him about it, and he said they had actually tore it down. I was so down in the dumps about it, and Mm. I said, well, you know, I had actually made a horror film, a big horror movie fan. He said, hey, have you ever heard of the American film market in Santa Monica? And I said, no. He said, you need to look into that. If you have a film, you're wanting to get distribution for. So I looked it up, and it was actually happening the following week, and I had no time to prep or get anything figured out on it. So I had to wait a whole other year to mm. prep and, and get uh, ready to go to the American film market. And that's how we uh, got our deal. We actually had three different distribution companies who were interested in the film. And uh, we uh, we showed it twice out there and sent out – we had we did – let's see. We, I can't remember how many different – uh, distribution companies who were interested in it. We sent out screeners too. And then we ended up with three in the end, and then uh, we ended up signing with uh, Summerhill Films, Tomcat Films out of Phoenix. Wow. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by that process. Uh, walk me through. You, you show up at AFM, and what do you do? Well, uh, the route I took, uh, and I think this was the first year they did it, they had these things called mini booths because uh, if if people who are not familiar with the American film market, what it is, uh, they take the Lowe's Hotel in Santa Monica and they take all the beds, all the furniture out of the hotel rooms and they turn them into offices. Uh, Lionsgate's there, Jerry Brockheimer Films is there, Lakeshore Media's there. I mean, all these big name uh, production companies and distribution companies are all there. And uh, so I got a mini booth and I shared it with uh, Mountain Park Media out of Atlanta, Georgia. So he was my booth mate. So uh, we had half a room. And uh, they give you a buyer list before you get to AFM. And you go through and you send out emails to all these different buyers and try to get meetings scheduled. And uh, I can't remember how many meetings. We, we had quite a few meetings scheduled through the entire time we were there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and would you have a, a press kit, a poster? Uh, what they, they actually let you decorate your room, kind of. They give you like a board outside your room and you can put your poster up on there uh-huh. um, and stuff like that. And they, you have like uh, inside the room, there's a cubicle that splits you up with the other, uh, whoever the other company is with you. If you get a mini booth, if you get a, like a, you know, just a regular booth, you get like your whole room to yourself. Or if you're, you know, Lionsgate, you can get a whole suite. But uh, so uh, basically you have your room split in half. And uh, sometimes you have to work around the other guy's schedule, like, hey, I got a three o'clock meeting. Uh, do you care if they come in here and meet or do you have something going on? So you kind of have to balance that if you have a mini booth. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the cool thing about it is by the end of AFM, sometimes and how I end up meeting Tomcat was at the end, I didn't have a scheduled meeting with him. And uh, there was a guy uh, from Devil Works, I think was a distribution company. He said that this guy, Ted Chalmers at Tomcat, might be interested in my film. So I went down there and talked to Ted, and he said, send me a screener. So after AFM, uh, you have all these people you did meetings with, and you, you know, they usually they make you do a pitch just when you have the meetings with them. They say, okay, give me your 30-second pitch or, you know, give me a two-minute pitch or whatever, and you have to pitch your film right there on the spot. And if they're interested, they say, okay, here's my email address. You know, wait a couple weeks after AFM and send me a screener, and we'll get back with you. Wow. Um, that's pretty exciting. First time at AFM, and uh, you got a deal. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. And uh, like I said, we had there was several other uh, different studios and production companies that were right there by us. Actually, the distribution company that had the room, uh, 
was like two doors down from me. So I got to meet Tommy Wiseau whenever he came in. Oh, so, cool. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I think Rob Van Dam was there. Ron Jeremy was even around in the building. So it was just, you know, you never know who you're going to meet at AFM. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Ron Jeremy always pops up where he's not wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just me going out to AFM. Some of these places, you know, they brought, you know, two or three or four people. So they were able to have one person go out and knock on doors, go to different, you know, distributors and talk to them and stuff like that. And they had someone holding down the fort. Uh, with my case, you know, I had to kind of pick and choose at what times, if it was really, really dead, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to go up to the upper floors or, you know, see who I can talk to, see who wants to, you know, send me, uh, have me send them a screener or stuff like that. So. Did you see any posters or films that you're like, Whoa, that looks good. Yeah, there was a couple. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of what was all there was some there were actually films that were actually incomplete that they were trying to get funding for uh the guy who actually i shared a mini booth with he had a short film that he was trying to maybe get some interest in to actually make a feature length film i think he's still working towards that um there were some people there that had like 10 20 or even 100 films that you know they were kind of like sub distributing and trying to get you know some of the foreign markets interested so, uh, like I said, there's a little bit of everything at AFM for sure. Yeah, it's great. You think you'll go back? Uh, I, I would say so. With the next, if we, uh, whenever we do the next project, uh, like I said, a lot's depending on this one of how much funding we get back, and because uh, I'd like to shoot a traditionally shot film the next time, and the area I'm in, it's kind of hard to rent equipment because we're so far away from everything. So mm-hmm. we probably have to actually put the money into buy the equipment and we also need to update some of our editing software and stuff like that now the the success on amazon is great what other platforms if any uh did your uh distributors uh work you into uh right now it's just amazon um they're supposed they're working on some different stuff around the world i know that and some different maybe itunes and uh maybe google play stuff like that so um especially with the success on Amazon, I think that'll kind of help maybe get us into some other platforms. But as of right now, it's just Amazon. So we'll, uh, we'll kind of see what happens. Since you do write scripts, um, do you already have one in the, in the wing, uh, you know, waiting, um, for, for the next project? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I have a, like I said, I have that meth house script I talked to you about earlier, and then we have a couple other scripts. So, um, like I said, it just kind of depends on, you know, how well Unlisted Owner does, depending on, you know, which script we're actually going to do next. Uh, you know, if we get if we get more funding, we're able to do more, you know, dr- you know, crazier stuff. Whereas if it doesn't make as much, we'll have to make kind of a lesser thing and just kind of build on that. But mm-hmm. what was the hardest thing about making this film? I would say trying to figure out how to get to this point, how to get a distribution deal, because we actually fil- finished up filming in 2013. And uh, from the research I had done to get a distribution deal, you know, you need to try to get some publicity at the film festivals and things of that nature. And like I said, we tried really hard. We submitted some different ones, but we didn't really have any success with that. So the fact that, you know, AFM was there for us and uh, uh, a lot of the people that I talked to out there were kind of impressed that, you know, a guy that had just one film went out to AFM because most of the people there, their companies had like at least five films under their belt. Mm-hmm. So um, the, I was able to get some respect in that aspect and uh, get some interest that way. So we actually showed it twice at, a, at the American film market. And uh, 
from what I see, there were some people that had world premieres that didn't have anybody show up to their uh, showing. And I at least had uh, five people at every, or both showings I did. So, mm. wow, that's going to be a heartbreaking experience. Nobody shows up. Yeah. 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 I, I seen, I seen that happen to uh, uh, some friends I had made out there. I actually went to their world premiere and uh, no one showed up for it. And then the second showing I wasn't able to make and they didn't have anybody show up for that. Uh, at AFN, there's one thing I did learn. Um, it, it's good to show your film out there, especially if you're going to do a world premiere because they plaster it everywhere. But as far as, you know, don't get your hopes up that you're going to have people lined up out the door wanting to see your film uh, because a lot of these uh, distribution companies and things of that nature have meetings set up the entire time and don't have time to actually go and uh, watch these films and they just want a screener later on. Hmm. Now, what was the wardrobe of everybody walking around? At AFM, uh, there's a lot of suit and tie. Uh, I had some suits and ties and stuff like that. So Nice. So with all these scripts you've got, uh, how many of them are horror? Um, actually, all of them. I, I, nice. do have a com I do have a comedy idea, but I haven't actually went through and actually wrote the script yet for it. And uh, to me, you know, Horror kind of is like comedy in a way, sure. uh, in, in my perspective. And people are like, well, I don't understand how you see that. But, you know, if you're hiding behind a couch or something and you jump out and scare somebody, what's the next thing you do? You laugh. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's that's one aspect I kind of see in it. Yeah, so, well, it's definitely even pushing the comedy further is proven to be bankable with yeah. like uh, Ash versus Evil Dead or, Dead or that type of genre. Right. And there is a lot of comedy in my film, a lot of jokes, uh, a lot of guy talk, you know, just, you know, getting onto each other, joking around and stuff like that. So there are funny parts in the film as well as scary. How much fake blood was used, if any? Uh, we used probably, I'd say, it's kind of hard to judge. Uh, I know we probably used at least a half gallon of fake blood, I would say. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, we actually we had a we had a pretty good makeup artist as well, especially with the she came on uh, when we shot the beginning family scene and she uh, she did some she did some really good stuff for us. Her name's Tabitha Bashor, and that was the first film she'd ever worked on. And she did like I said she the actually you can see uh, the makeup she did in the trailer. She did this nice cut across our uh, actor Mark Nation Ellis's face and turned out really well. Cool. And are there monsters? Uh, there's an entity for you to decide what it is yeah. <laughs> without yeah. giving too much away. <laughs> I know I can tell I'm getting close, so I'll lay off. But, uh, you, you mentioned you build a set. Can you go into that a little? Yeah, for sure. Uh, actually the scene that I came up with in my head to write the entire film around was of a, a person being pulled up into an attic space. And the house that I picked out for the film didn't have an attic space, which I really wouldn't trust someone, you know, standing up there, a couple guys standing up there to pull someone up through it. Mm. So um, to do that, we built a fake room that had an attic space in it, and it was to the specs of the actual room that we used. And uh, and that's where the blend edits really came key because we wanted to make it look like it's not like a, uh, you know, traditionally shot film where you do a hard edit, you know, where you're going into a room and then you're in the room, but you're actually in the fake room. So to make it seem like you're still in the same room, we actually, there's like, I think there's, see, one, two, I think there's like six edits in a matter of five seconds 
to where you're in the real room, you're in the fake room when it gets pulled up in it, you're back in the real room, back in the fake room, and then you're back into the real room. Wow. So, and to, I haven't had anybody notice the edits yet. So, and I've told people about it. And uh, that was that was the main reason we needed the fake room for that scene. And then we also cracked the ceiling later on, and we weren't going to crack the ceiling in a house we didn't own. So, mm. <laughs> and then did you destroy it when it was over? Yeah, actually, uh, we uh, we actually had a contest uh, when we tore it down. I took pieces of the drywall and had some of the cast members sign it, and uh, we're actually getting ready to do a drawing for it. Uh, we had people who pre-ordered the film submit us uh, pr- proof of purchase and then share a post and they were entered in a drawing and uh, we're going to do the drawing here in the next few days of who's going to win a piece of the fake room that's signed by the cast and actually has some fake blood splatter on it from the <laughs> week. So, i love it what yeah. a piece of a fake room with fake blood on it yep there you go <laughs> <laughs> well this seems like a lot of work uh how, yeah. how many days uh was production how, how long were you actually filming uh, well, let's see. I'm trying to think because, like I said, we started this thing in 2012 when we started filming. Um, I, we did it every weekend for probably, I'd say, if I had to say, I'd say probably about two weeks of shooting, I would say, altogether, including going back and having to refix some things and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we actually did a special effects scene in the film. Uh, we have a squad car that, uh, with the dash cram I was talking about, and mm-hmm. we actually have uh, the police officer turns on his light inside the cab of the vehicle, and you can see his reflection in the uh, car. So, and that was actually two plates. Uh, we had the original plate of what was going on uh, the, the dash cam video, and then we had the plate of the reflection, and we put that over the top. So, wow. So, you mentioned uh, you've been on the radio and TV lately. Can, yes, can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, the uh, the local media around here has been awesome. Uh, I've done, I think I've done three three or four TV interviews now. I just did one today, actually, uh, and uh, I've done countless newspaper interviews. And uh, this is actually the uh, well, I've done another podcast, but this is the first podcast outside of uh, my general area that I've done. So I appreciate you having me on. That that's pretty awesome in my book. It's great to have you on. This is this is turning out to be very insightful. Well, I'm, I'm glad I can help because, like I said, whenever I first started this project, I was just trying to figure out how to get, you know, how do I get this thing out there once I've made it? Mm-hmm. So, that and that, like I said, that was the part that took me the longest. And that's one thing it really shows you, you know, that uh, all the stuff I read online, it's like you got to get into these film festivals if you're going to be successful, you know, you got to have people see your product outside of your own scope. And, you know, the fact that AFM was there kind of to, help me along that curve you know it just you know really shows you that you know you don't just have to depend on film festivals to be able to be a successful filmmaker right well and you are open uh to the idea of of something you know the guy tells you it's happening and you come back and attend uh a lot of people wouldn't do that so uh, i say well played well thank you i appreciate that and we should mention to everybody out there that you can watch it today it's yes, out. Yes. It's on yes, Amazon it, right now. Yes, it is. Yeah, we. Uh, you can watch it on. Uh, you can stream it on Amazon if you just go to Amazon and type in "unlisted owner," uh, or you can order the DVD right now. They're temporarily out of stock, but they are supposed to be restocking them as soon as possible, and that will actually have the the bonus features of the outtakes and bloopers, and that that's another aspect altogether. Of the outtakes are to me are 
are hilarious, but it really goes to show you whenever you shoot something with your friends, it can be very, very stressful because, you know, you have your friends that are helping you, you know, try to make your dreams come true. But, you know, whenever they're, you know, you're trying to get them focused and go on to the next thing, but sometimes it's kind of hard to get that attention. Hey, you know, we need to get this thing shot tonight. You know, we need to get this going. Mm -hmm. So, well, I think, I think you shared a lot of good info today and, uh, I'm excited, you know, for your film to continue on and and be a huge success. Well, I just thank you for having me on the Indie Film Grit. I really appreciate it. Um, whenever I was researching some different podcasts to go on, yours was rated one of the top indie podcasts. So I was like, hey, I need to try to get on this podcast. So I really do appreciate you having me on and uh, getting the word out and uh, maybe hopefully something I said through this podcast or hopefully there's somebody out there maybe that's listening and, you know, maybe in a rut to where they made a film and they're not having very good on the festival circuit. And maybe hopefully I can maybe give them a little bit of inspiration and courage and say, look, you know, just because, you know, the festivals aren't going your way doesn't mean that your film is not a good film and, you know, doesn't mean it's not going to be successful someday. So you just got to keep working at it and just don't, don't give up. Yeah. Wise words from Jed Bryan. Jed, thanks again for being on the podcast, man. This was great. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grip Podcast. Feel free to go to the website and check out the show notes, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grid?